we're in the what really many consider to be the heart of the Book of Romans. Uh, this is the vital center of the book, and it's the answer to the dilemma that Paul poses in 118 through 320. So let's, I want to start again with verse 21 and work our way particularly, and especially through verse 26. It may take us the hour to do that. This is, um, I'm not sure I want to say it this way, I'm going to say it this way. If you don't understand these verses, you really don't understand in its fullness all that God has done for us. I think all of us, I mean, I'm assuming that's true in this room and those online, all of us could give a simple articulation of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins on the cross, was resurrected on the third day in power and victory and so on. But it's much deeper than that. And I'm not saying that that sentence I just uttered isn't true, but it's much deeper than that. And what Paul does in this passage is looks at the plan of salvation totally from God's perspective. What has to happen for God to be satisfied? What has to happen? Because what Paul has shown in 118 through 320 is that God's wrath is upon the human race. That the human race stands under judgment of God. That the human race has has rejected every revelation God has sent. Let's just quickly review creation, 118 through 32, conscience, 2, 1 through 16, and God's moral law, 2, 17 through 320. And not only are the Jews culpable for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and not fulfilling the law, but all human beings are. Paul says this at the very beginning of his argument, 118.19, no one will stand before God and say you're being unjust. They are without excuse. Remember, that's a theme that he develops throughout the passage. So you exit 3.20 with almost a sense of hopelessness. So God has to do something. And that, that that fundamental understanding that the problem of humanity is not a financial problem, it's not a social problem, it's not a political problem, it's a spiritual problem. Humanity is in rebellion against God, stands under God's judgment, and there is no hope except what God does. As Paul explains fully and completely and theologically in three uh, chapters, uh, three of Romans 21 through 26. Now, I wrote, not up here anymore, but I wrote on the board last week, I don't think I'll write it again, but one of the things that is also important about this passage, and really the passages that follow 118 through 320, as well as what we're looking at too, today is you have to understand that righteousness has two aspects to it. I hope you remember I wrote on the board. There's the saving righteousness of God, and there's the judging righteousness of God. That's why what I'm saying is we look at this passage, this is a passage that's developed from the perspective of God. What has to happen for God to be satisfied? So his grace and mercy, which is evidenced in his saving righteousness, must also perfectly match his justice, which is in his judging righteousness. 
Because if God is just, and remember, as I think I mentioned this last week, whenever you talk about an attribute of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his eternality, whatever attribute you're going to talk about, remember, God holds that attribute in perfection. Do you understand what I mean when I say it? He holds that attribute in perfection. And whatever that attribute means, it will never be contradicted by another attribute. So God's righteousness, for God's righteousness to be satisfied, for him to be a righteous God. Remember, that's the thesis of the book, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Or I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the righteousness of God revealed. Remember that? And the righteousness of God has these two aspects, two facets to it. So God's saving righteousness must perfectly match his judging righteousness. And where, let's put it another way, where is God's grace, which is manifested in his saving righteousness, where does his saving righteousness meet his judging righteousness, his justice, at the cross? Right? Those two perfect aspects of God's character, those two aspects that define his righteousness, he saves according to his grace, he judges according to his justice. But if he's going to be a perfectly just God, somebody has to pay the penalty for what we have examined in 118 through 320. Someone has to pay that penalty. The Jews and the Gentiles, every, human, every single human being, someone has to do that. And, and that's, and I hope you'll follow, I'm not trying to be polemical here, unkind or argumentative, but that's one of the fallacies of a preacher or a movement or a Christian who says, well, I just think God loves everybody. And God loves, that is absolutely true. But God's love can never be manifested at the expense of his justice. Then he's not a perfect God. And he's compromising and bending. Does that work if I say it that way? So that's what Paul's trying to get at. So verses 21 through 22 focus on God's saving righteousness. Are you with me? For the last five minutes of that <laughs> diatribe, are you with me? Oh, yeah. All right. Two people are with me. <clears throat> First of all, let me read 21 through 22, 21 through 23. Then I'm going to go back. This is familiar. This is very familiar verses. But if you don't understand the division between 3, 1 through 23 is Paul's focus on God's saving righteousness. And 24 through 26 is focusing on his judging righteousness. You missed the point. So 21 through 23. But now, we talked about that last week, that is an incredibly important uh, structural marker in the argument. And I don't mean to sound grammatical, but just to stress that. Because you've just seen uh, 118 through 320, not doom and gloom, but it's almost hopelessness and despair. But now, so something's happened, something's changed. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ of all who believe. There's no distinction 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which he just proved in 118 through 3.20. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does God do? He manifests his saving righteousness in Jesus. And I want you to notice he makes three points here. Number one, that saving righteousness is apart from the law. You see that in verse 21? It's apart from the law. The law does not save. That was never the purpose of the law. That was never the function of the law. That's not why God gave the law. We'll talk a little more about that in just a minute. Secondly, I want you to see that he says the law and the prophets, that is a biblical phrase for the Old Testament. (laughs) The Old Testament bore witness to this. This saving righteousness of God, which is manifested apart from the law, is not new truth. It's in the Old Testament. It's attested by the Old Testament law and prophets. It's there. And the third thing he says, you appropriate this righteousness. You receive this righteousness. You are blessed with this righteousness. What righteousness? The saving righteousness of God through faith. It's apart from the law. It's attested by the Old Testament law and prophets, and it is appropriated by faith. So the saving righteousness of God is not new truth. It's not something that God, well, everything I did with Israel, everything I did with Moses, everything I did with all, it failed. So now I got to go to plan B. If that's how you look at it, you have a distorted, perverted, inaccurate understanding of the Bible. It is always, that's what he's going to prove in chapter 4. Because how are the Old Testament saints justified? Answer, by faith. The same thing God is asking of you, this side of the cross, is what he asked of the Old Testament saints. You're justified by faith. We'll talk more about that in chapter 4. So, again, I... This is so important to me that I want to make sure you're understanding. This isn't new. Most of everybody, maybe not everybody, almost everybody here probably memorized Romans 3.23 some point. When you're in Bible classes and when you're in vacation Bible school and you're in Sunday school as a little child, that's one of the verses you memorize. It's so easy. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. But you see, that comes at the end of the saving righteousness of God. Everyone needs this. It's not just for a few. It's not just for the Jews. As Paul has just proven in 118 through 3.20, everyone needs this. And this saving righteousness of God is available apart from the law. It's been attested in the Old Testament law and prophets. And it only comes through faith. Those who believe. Because everybody is under judgment. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Got it? Now, what is often not explained or not emphasized as equally important is 324 through 26. The judging righteousness of God. Because, listen, this is a very important sentence I'm about to utter. For God to forgive and for God to save 
God's wrath has to be appeased. Do you understand that sentence? For Romans 3, 21 through 23, to be applied, God's wrath, which is upon the human race, must be appeased. Do you know what appeased means? Satisfied. Because God's love and God's justice, which is what saving righteousness, judging righteousness, they must be equally satisfied, equally dealt with. God does not save the rebellious, condemned human race at the expense of his justice. Does that make sense? Does that sentence make sense to you? Because you, you must understand what Paul has been arguing here. Because all that he's been saying, 118 3.20, something has to change there. Because God's wrath is upon the human race. We have willfully, intentionally chosen rebellion against him. And so what 320, uh, 3 chapter 3.24.26 does is it, it shows us how God does this. How does he appease, how does he satisfy his wrath? So let me read 3.24, 25, and 26. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through, by means of, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Which dimension of his righteousness? His judging righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The 324 through 26 focuses on that second aspect of God's righteousness, his judging righteousness. How is his wrath appeased? How is his justice satisfied? Who pays the penalty? How does God do this? Because if his wrath cannot be appeased, if his justice cannot be satisfied, then he cannot forgive. He cannot redeem. He cannot cleanse. He cannot justify. So how does God do it? We already saw in verse 21 that his saving righteousness is a part from the law. So his judging righteousness is by grace. It's a gift. That means we're not going to die as a judgment for our sins if we have put faith in his son. Because remember, death is the judgment for sin. Death has two facets to it. It's an eternal separation from God, and it's the separation of the spirit and the body, the human spirit and the human body. But that separation from God is the judgment, the eternal judgment for sin. Because those who reject God's grace will spend eternity separated from him in a place called the lake of fire. So, if we deserve that death, if we deserve that eternal separation, which is the penalty for sin and rebellion, 
What God offers us is a gift. A gift that's motivated by his grace. That's the basis for his judging righteousness being satisfied. What's the method that God uses to satisfy his judging righteousness? He tells us that at the end of verse 24. It's by his grace as a gift through, the Greek word there's dia, by means of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the method of God satisfying his wrath, his judging righteousness, his redemption. And what is the, uh, you know, I think you know this, there's three words, three Greek words in the New Testament that always translate redemption. And each one has the sense of purchasing something, purchasing something that is in bondage, freeing someone, or even something, but it's almost always used of a person in a slave type of economy, which the ancient world was. You purchase someone out of the bondage of, of slavery, but you have to pay a price for that. In the Greco-Roman world at the time of Jesus, it was 30 pieces of silver, but it varies throughout the history of the world. What was the price Jesus paid to redeem us? It's like the shedding of his blood. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus Christ says when he institutes the Lord's table, this bread is the this bread is, is done for you because my body has been broken for you. Here is the cup of the new covenant, which is, I paraphrase that, inaugurated by the shedding of my blood. The new covenant is inaugurated by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the shedding of his blood. So when Paul says that through, by means of the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, the method of God satisfying his judging righteousness is the shed blood of his son. And here's where an Old Testament word comes in. Because the Old Testament word in the Old Testament economy was, at, for example, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, you would, you would slaughter a, a, a lamb, a perfect, perfect lamb, and the blood would be placed on the mercy seat. And the word that's used in the Old Testament is atonement. But the atonement of Jesus, because aton- the, the, the Hebrew word for atonement at the basic level means to cover. So that blood covers sin. But you see, the book of Hebrews makes it very clear. Jesus' atonement, Jesus' redemption is once for all. Peggy and I say so often, we're so thankful we were born on the side of the cross. Otherwise, if we were walking with God, we'd have to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices and all that stuff. You should say amen to that. We don't have to do that. Because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Thesis of the book of Hebrews. So what Paul is saying here is the means of God satisfying his judging righteousness was his grace. The method of satisfying his judging righteousness was redemption. What's the means? How do we appropriate that? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's the means. basis is grace. The method is redemption. The means is faith. And the consequences 
propitiation. I hope all of your translations translate that word propitiation. If it's translated expiation, that's not satisfactory. It's got to be propitiation. Only use four times in the New Testament. But propitiation means the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath. So the judging righteousness of God is satisfied. How? By the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, satisfying his wrath because he shed his blood. He died a substitutionary death for you and me. In the prophecies of Isaiah 53, which is a really, really important Old Testament prophecy, but in Isaiah 53, it says God pours out his wrath. That's what he did to Jesus. That's why from from 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on April the 3rd, A.D. 33, that's why the earth was dark. That's why there were earthquakes, because God the Father was pouring out his wrath on God the Son. And every single human being, whether they knew what was going on or not, most, of course, did not. The darkness upon the face of the earth, those earthquakes, as God shook the earth as he judged his son. But before God could forgive and save, his wrath had to be appeased. And that's the message that's not a comfortable message of the gospel. That's not something a lot of people like to talk about, the wrath of God. But it's equally, I mean, for, for goodness sake, if you study 118 through 320, you see everybody deserves judgment and wrath. Because they've rejected everything God sent. Can you address that? Because before I can tell you, you simply cannot talk about this in our society. All religions are going to the same place. Why so worry about it? I mean, I know that's not true, but this is an unapproachable topic in our society. It is, absolutely. In any, school, absolutely. In any universe, Well, even in, any, even in many churches, in many Bill. Churches, in many Christians, I've yeah, many, many, many churches that name the name of Christ. You go and talk like this, and I say, well, that's not really what we want to talk about as Christians. God's a loving God. It's true, he is. Yeah, I mean, we are, and that's the... I'm going to betray a real strong prejudice I have. The reason for that, even with outside the culture, I decided to try to understand that. Because people that are rejecting God and rejecting rebellion against him, they're not going to accept this message anyway. It's like trying to talk to a believer about election and predestination. Our church is caught in a trap in some ways by going through the side door with the Afghans. We're helping them, we're doing a lot for them. And supposedly that love and niceness will lead them around this corner. But technically, by the rules of the group that we're working with, we're not even allowed to witness. Well, that's one. Of, that's right. That's one of the tragedies of this. But if I can just address the issue of the church, I believe one of the reasons why it is difficult to even talk about these things within Christianity is it's, it is the result of the superficiality and shallowness of 45 years of teaching and preaching. Maybe you don't agree with me. But if you're going to teach the whole counsel of God, you have to teach Romans 1, 18 through 320. You have to teach the, some of the prophets of the Old Testament. You have to teach Jeremiah. Where the wrath of God is poured out on his people 
as he disciplines them and sends them to exile. At the end of Jeremiah, you have explicit, explicit accounts of Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem as he destroys the walls of the north, comes in, and just slaughters people. Why is that in the Bible? Because God's wrath was being poured out on his people as he disciplined. They're his people. They're his covenant people. But they, in the words of Jeremiah, they're whoring after other gods. And God said, if you do that, I will discipline you and send you in exile. You will lose the land that I gave you. See, Bill, that's part of teaching the whole counsel of God. Because if you're going to really help God, this is what Paul's doing here. If you really want to understand God and understand God's plan of salvation, you have to deal with his wrath and his judgment as well as his love and his grace. Because this is the message. This is what Paul's doing here. The message of the gospel is God appeases his wrath on the cross as the Father pours out his wrath on his Son. That, I mean, that's, that, that's really, really? Where are you getting at? It's in the Bible. <laughs> it's all through the Bible. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament. And the next statements, I don't believe in the Bible in here. Oh, well, see, that's it. Well, but Paul keeps telling Timothy and Titus in First Timothy, 2 Timothy and the book of Titus, teach your people. These are the last things Paul says. He's in Rome. He's in prison. He's about to be executed. Teach your people sound doctrine. Don't just feed them pablum. Teach them sound doctrine. In the words of Hebrews, teach them the meat of the word of God. And that means you teach hard truth. You deal with difficult passages. You deal with uncomfortable passages. Now, Bill, that's that's my initial response. I mean, I'm outside. If I'm outside the church, I'm not going to expect people to let me talk about this. If they let me, I'll talk about it. <laughs> but I don't expect them to be open to me talking about this. But I should be able to talk about this in the Church of Christ. Whether I'm a seeker-friendly church or a church that's deep into the Word of God, we should be able to talk about this, because this is central, as I said at the beginning of class this morning. 3, 1, 21 through 26 is central to the book of Romans, because this is salvation from God's perspective. This is what, God, this is what it cost God to save us. He poured out his wrath on his son. Propitiation. I wish it were used 95 times in the scriptures. It's only used four times. And when you look at some of the modern translations, they try to get around it. They don't like the word propitiation. They use other words, like expiation, which whoever, who uses expiation? I don't even know what that word means. It's just you you try to get around it because it's a hard truth. I don't want to talk about God's wrath, but God's wrath is part. I'm going to say it's central to 118 through 320. All right? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's many people that will never ever open this book. And you mentioned the awareness of God, creation, consciousness, and the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth. That is a real factor. And I just think about the people that need to have some Christian. Alongside of them and love them, not as the world loves them, as God, and show them that they are loved by God. Remember a person once said, I, and they were a wilderness 
of the hope that this message brings. When I think, listen, I don't know where all you want me to go with that, Fred, no, but, it's, it's, but it's, it, it is important for us. This is, we are understanding this. This is not the first thing you say to an unbeliever. I want to give you an exposition of 321 through 20, why you're going to hell. That's probably not the best. Yeah, that's not the tactic we use. I love Bill Fay. I don't know if you, you probably don't know him, but he's a uh, very uh, famous and well-known evangelist. I love his method as the postmodern world. He says you approach people with questions, and if they don't respond to your questions, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit has not been at work long in their lives. Just don't sweat it. But you know, the question is, uh, you know, you develop a friendship with someone and say, "I'm just curious, Bill." Um, who's Jesus to? Well, I don't want to talk about that. We're here to play golf. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> well, they, yeah, well, this is Jesus. I think he's a great man, great teacher. And I, I really think he gave us an ethical code. That's good. That's really technical. I, I agree with that. Good answer. Bill, do you mind if I share who Jesus is to me? No, I don't really care. Okay, that's fine. Don't worry about it. I'll sweat it. But then you have, if they say, yeah, who's this to you? You have an opportunity to share that Jesus has transformed your life. You're talking about how the, inv the invitation of Jesus into your life changed you. And you just start to build on that. And that's why for you and me, as this is the meat of God's word. Again, I said, you wouldn't read this to an unbeliever and say, you're going to hell. Here's reason why. But it's, this is you and me understanding. This is what it costs God to save us. This is why the holistic plan of redemption involved both the satisfaction of God's wrath as well as the love of God manifested through Christ that I embrace. Because in order for God to forgive us, cleanse us, and redeem us, he first had to have his wrath satisfied. And that's it's amazing. And I preached a number of Good Friday messages. It's important on the, in Good Friday to stress what happened from 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on April the 3rd, AD 33. That's when the Father poured out his wrath and the Son. That's why there was darkness on the earth. That's why there were earthquakes. Can you read the, the gospel accounts? <clears throat> Would it be all right if I go on? <laughs> God, God's love is tough love. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, then. how do you tie that Good Friday what Book of Revelation? Okay. Now, I understood your word, but I'm trying to. As far as the, the 
It is. And the key is chapter 6 through chapter 18, because they're the three seal judgments, all about coming, judgments, all about all judgments, and all that. There is God's wrath, and the word wrath is used in those, those chapters. God's wrath is being poured out on, on planet Earth because of the rebellion and rejection of him and those who are following the Antichrist, the beast, is what he's called in Revelation. And so, Glenn, um, another message, which is not a popular message to talk about in terms of what all the Bible says, is that those who reject, let's use the words Paul using here, the grace of God, do not pick up the gift from the table that God offers. I paid it all. It's there. Pick it up. Faith. They will experience God's wrath and judgment. So, again, now you have to think through the, the argument he's making here. God has provided the path for us to have a relationship relationship to him based on faith because his at, wrath has been appeased through the shedding of the blood of Jesus, the punishment of Jesus on the cross and all that, death of Jesus. But if we reject that, then the judgment that God promised in the Garden of Eden, the day you sin is the day you will die. That's what God says to Adam and Eve. And that has been the consistent message throughout the Bible. If you reject the grace of God, God's perfect justice demands something. If you refuse, if you refuse my propitiation, then you will face judgment. Eternal separation from me. And as C.S. Lewis says in his marvelous book, The Great Divorce, God does not send people to hell. They choose to go to hell. Hell, lake of fire is really what it's called at the end of Revelation. The lake of fire is a result and the destiny of those who reject God's grace. And you, you've read, well, God cannot possibly condemn people to hell. How could God, who's loving, how could he do that? So you're only focusing on one aspect of God's righteousness. Because if God holds all of his attributes in perfection, and we reject his love and grace and compassion, is he going to, well, it's all right, I'll still let you. Then God's justice is not perfect. God bends. No, God's justice is held in perfection. And if you reject his grace, you will experience eternal separation from him. So, Glenn, if I understood your question, that's the answer I would give. Now, let me finish this. We're not done yet. I told you it would be hard to get through all this in the hour. Now, notice at the middle of, of, of verse 25 there, this now, that's a demonstrative pronoun. I, I don't mean to bore you with grammar. But this, well, what's the antecedent of that? Verse 24 to verse 25. This, everything he said, was to show God's righteousness. What dimension of his righteousness? His judging righteousness, his justice. Because, now I want you to notice these words. In my Bible, I put a little check mark before it. His divine forbearance. First. Check mark. He passed over former sins. Second check mark. 
It was to show his righteous, what? His judging righteousness at this present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is, this is quite, quite marvelous, really. Because we see a dimension of God's grace here. And sometimes we miss this in verse 25. Because in his divine forbearance, now, you know, probably when was the last time you heard somebody use forbearance in a sentence? Nobody talks like that. So what does forbearance mean? Sometime in the past. Pardon? At some time in the past. Well, yes. Refrain from things that in the past, divine forbearance, patient. He's not overlooking it, but he's forbearing it. Like when you are raising your children, you are very forbearing. I don't know if all of you raise children, but I mean, it, it, I mean, you're you're forbearing because you know you love your children, you love your kids and grandkids, etc. And you're forbearing, you're patient, you persevere. So God's divine forbearance. What evidence that? Now the ESV translation I read from has chosen to translate this. He had notice it's had passed over former sins. So in his divine forbearance, he passes over former sins. What does that mean? Every single sin that was committed before Jesus Christ died on the cross on April the 3rd, 30, every single sin God passed over. He didn't ignore it. He didn't forgive it. He passed over it. It was to show his righteousness. What righteousness? His judging righteousness at the present time. Now, with Jesus Christ. One theologians put it this way. At the cross of Jesus Christ, all past bills came due. So that, an incredibly important theological term here that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he might be just. There's his attribute. That he holds an absolute perfection. That he might be just. God had to judge all past sin that he passed over. He didn't ignore them. He didn't forgive them. He passed over them. Because somewhere, that bill has to come due. He's just and the justifier. The one who declares you righteous when you put your faith in Jesus. So he develops a plan, executes the plan, and offers you righteousness. That's the righteousness of God. The saving righteousness and judging righteousness of God come together perfectly and completely at the cross, totally satisfying God's wrath, totally satisfying his absolute perfect attribute of justice, and He, the result is he can declare you righteous. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. 
Now, there's a great play from our man, and you missed it. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's just the heart of what God has done for us. That he just missed it is my, my boss, my pastor, he pastor. He says, son, so often. So Paul's bringing this to a conclusion now. 3.1, 3.21, 3.26, he's brought to a conclusion. Because I want you to understand that the saving righteousness and judging righteousness of, Christ comes, uh, of God comes together in Christ. He's perfectly just, but he's also the justifier. Because he's perfectly just, and he satisfies his wrath and pieces his wrath by pouring out his wrath on Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, he therefore, when you put your faith in his son, he can declare, Joel is hereby righteous, which is the basis in which Joel Johnson can have a relationship with living God. And I use Joel because he's sitting at this table, one of my fingers pointing at him. He's the easiest one for me to hit. So... Now, you won't do this, but what if, if I would give you a thought paper, what I would do is I would ask you, 3, 21 through 26, explain Paul's arguing about the saving righteousness and judging righteousness of God being fulfilled in Jesus. How did God do this? If everybody stands condemned, 118 through 320, how does God do this? I mean, it's like, what a dilemma. I mean, God never has a dilemma, but what would, how does God do this? This amazing plan of redemption, hatched in the Old Testament, revealed in detail in the Old Testament, filled in the New Testament with the gospel account. And now Paul is saying, you've got to understand from God's perspective everything that happened on April the 3rd, 8033. An historic event. This is what happened that afternoon. Now, you won't do that. But if you were to do it, it would just be a good way for you to work through this one more time. This is the amazing gospel. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the righteousness of God. Just. I saved my faith. All right? For God to forgive and to redeem us. His wrath had to be satisfied. And Paul has just explained how God did this. Got it? Everybody online got it? That's a yes. All right. Thank you, Russ. <laughs> this, if I can be blunt, and I'm not thinking of anybody. This is what needs to be taught in our churches. And we need to review this. We need to keep reviewing this. That's why about every 10 years, I teach Romans. Because it is so important to work through what is in the book of Romans. It's been nicknamed the Constitution of Christianity. You can see why. Because there's no other book that quite explains this. And it's just, you really see the brilliance of Paul here. Of course, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, I know. All right, well, enough of that. Yeah, you also see the, the saving grace of God Christ to stop Paul. Oh. Yeah, yeah. God chose the right guy, didn't he? He kind of knows what he's doing. And you said it hasn't been taught for 45 years. Were you speaking metaphorically, or was there something that happened for well, you that changed? Yeah, I think the, the 1950s was the fourth and final revival 
in American history, which was a huge, it had, that was Billy Graham kind of was a, not the only one, but he was one of the key movers of that. But Eisenhower was president, the only president to be baptized while in office. I believe he put his faith in Christ while he was in office under the tutelage of Billy Graham. You, you saw him put the liberty, this is Eisenhower liberty stamp, Recent liberty saying, God we trust. God we trust was put on uh, all our coins and all our currency, mandated by Congress at the request of the president. We added uh, to the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, under God. I mean, it was it was a spiritual renewal. Now, granted, we were in a we were in a battle, cosmic battle against atheistic communism, and that was part of what was motivating all this. Um, in, in some cities in the United States, church attendance was in the 80th percentile. The 1960s is the most revolutionary decade in post-World War II history because it all, it all turned on its head in the 1960s into the 1970s. The war in Vietnam, all the things that were going on. I, I, I was in college in the 1960s. And I remember what my campus was like. I mean, it was this upheaval and chaos everywhere. I mean, it was just, and it was, and it was a turning of everything. The revival of the very late '40s into the '50s was turned on its head, and and a, and a skepticism started to enter into Christianity, and and a and when I say I mean biblical Christianity, and with that, like lots of other things started to get our attention. And then you had, well, I'm not going to further. So I would say it's about at that time that you start to see, this comes out of the 60s. You remember the Beatles' famous song, All We Need Is Love. Remember that? And you know, that kind of language. And so that meant, okay, then that's all we're going to focus on. That's true. That's absolutely, God, Jesus said to his disciples, they will know you are my disciples by your love. But, you know, that's, that's it. But it's more than that. <laughs> and so, you know, Joe, I just think it's, it's just hard. It's just hard to teach this stuff. It's hard to preach this from the pulpit. And you people walk out. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be, in, I don't want to be confronted with this. Why do you say that it's hard to preach that? You mean across the board? I, you don't have it. Well, I don't have any trouble preaching it. When people walk out, that's it's hard for people to hear. But it, it's not. I mean, it's... It, in Paul writes in Timothy, people, at the end, Paul says, people are just want to hear, they have their ears tickled. That's the language he says. And that's going to be one of the signs of the end. They just don't want to hear their ears They don't want to be confronted with the, with the, the truth. People walk up because the next verse, the very next verse. <laughs> well, I can't boast about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, but I, I and now I, they're really broad stroke statements. I don't mean every church and every, but I'm you know I'm using a really broad stroke statement. But it is a tremendous concern. That's why when I retired in 2012, I committed to two things: I'm going to preach God's word. I'm going to mentor men. That's what the Lord has allowed me to do these last ten years. And as long as I can breathe and walk and open my mouth, this is what Lord willing I will do. Because I think this is really important to do, and it's uncomfortable for some people. Now, verse 27, uh, I don't know if I can get through all this, but verse 27 brings this all now to a conclusion. Then, 
if justification is by faith, if we appropriate this work by faith, then what becomes of our boasting? Faith excludes boasting. Now, I'm going to, if I can do that, I want to do three things here. Faith excludes boasting, faith eliminates distinctions, and faith establishes the law of God. Here are the three. I'm going to get through all this today. I'm going to start it. Number one, faith excludes boasting. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Now, this is a broad statement to all humanity, but it is also a specific focus on the Jewish person. Because he addressed that in chapter 3, 1 through 20. The Jewish person said, but we have the law. We have circumcision. We're God's covenant people. We have the inside track. We put our thumbs in our suspenders and say, we've got it made. The first century rabbi said, Father Abraham sits at the gates of hell and will not let any of his children in. That's not a biblical statement. <laughs> so Paul says, then what a boasting. By grace, through faith, excludes that. No one is going to stand. No one is going to be in heaven. Fred and I are in heaven, and we're comparing notes. Well, but Fred, I, how come you're here? Well, this is what I did. And he takes out his notebook and starts reading all the things that he did. And I'll say, well, I did more than you did. Here's my notebook. Now, this is ridiculous. It's stupid. It's silly. Because when we're in heaven, Nobody is going to boast, I'm here because of what I did. I'm here because of the grace of God. But what kind of law? By a law of works? Are we here because of law of works? No. The law of faith. Boasting is neutralized by faith. Because if you understand three twenty uh, chapter 3, 21 through 26, you understand it has nothing to do with your merit, your works, your goodness. You deserve God's wrath. But God sent Jesus. The basis was grace, the method was redemption, the means was faith. That's why you're here. For we hold that one is justified by faith, verse 28, apart from the works of the law. If salvation is by grace through faith, it excludes all boasting. Secondly, faith eliminates all distinctions. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Oh, he's just shown no. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Faith eliminates all distinctions. In my church, I just started a series on the book of Acts. It'll go on into, into August. And I introduced it last week. And one of the things I was studying this, because I've taught and studied Acts many times in my life, but this time, for some reason, I never saw this. <clears throat> Because what Acts records is the geographical, the ge geographical spread of the gospel. You know, in Acts one eight, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. Remember that. 
Okay, you see that. You can chart it. You can see it. What I never noticed is this. It's also about the ethnic spread of the gospel. It's everybody. And that's what causes an existential crisis in the early church. Because the church is, you know, the early church is all Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The 12 apostles were Jews. Paul was a Jew, et cetera, you know. And all of a sudden, you got up to Antioch, where everybody up there is a Gentile. And this church is actually exploding in growth. And then Paul goes on his missionary journey, because the Antioch church sends him the first missionary journey. And he's all with Gentiles. And thousands, thousands, thousands of Gentiles are coming to Christ. And the Jews are saying, wait a minute. They got to keep the law, don't they? They got to be circumcised, don't they? And it's an existential crisis. You know, existential. It's an existential crisis for the church. What you have is, a, oh my goodness, we're going to have two churches. We're going to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and they're never going to talk to each other. They're going to hate each other. They're going to be in disagreement. Dis- and Paul just nails that. But Peter does first. And it culminates in the Jerusalem Council. This is Acts 15. <clears throat> What's that all about? There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everybody everywhere needs Jesus, and the gospel is for everybody everywhere. And so the gospel is not only geographical spread, but it's the spread ethnically, racially, ethnically, every way. It's for everybody. And the early, it was a serious crisis. It's a little bit like today. That's a serious issue. It really is. And so that's the amazing thing. What's Paul saying? <laughs> The gospel eliminates all distinctions. Faith eliminates all distinctions. Everybody has to come to Christ by faith. And thirdly, I'm going to get this done. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No. We uphold the law. Listen to me. The moral law of God is fulfilled in the new covenant. The book of Acts is about the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. God puts the Holy Spirit within us. That's it. When you read Jeremiah 31, you read Ezekiel 36, two major passages in the New Testament, New Covenant, New Old Testament. I'll put my law, I'll put my spirit within you, and then you will obey. Then you will observe my moral law. And that's when you study the New Testament, study especially the 13 epistles of Paul. And that's coming up in Romans 8 and following. But you see it. We are able to keep the moral law of God. So what? it's an amazing thing. Faith in Jesus Christ enables us to uphold the law. We can obey the moral law of God. Because now we have, because the new covenant has a temple, it has a priesthood, and it has a sacrifice. The temple of the new covenant is you and me. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have a priesthood. Who's our high priest? Jesus. And we have a sacrificial system. What is it? Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2. We'll get to that in 2026. Present your bodies a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to me, which is your reasonable service. And we can uphold the law. So faith, faith eliminates boasting. Faith eliminates all distinctions. And faith upholds the law. 
because we are justified. We have been declared righteous. Isn't it amazing what God has done for us? Really? Again, great place for an amen. You almost did. <laughs> All right. You got it? Yes. Everybody online got it? Because I'm done. Before I will write my law on their heart. Yes. It's your purpose. It's your purpose. Now, got, I'll use 30 seconds to anticipate next week. Chapter 4. Paul must answer this question because everything he said begs this question. How, when you say that God's divine forbearance passed over, how, how were those people in the Old Testament, how were these guys saved? How were they justified? He's got to answer that because you just said that the law doesn't justify. You just said that, Paul. So how were they justified? Now, if I were writing this book, I'd want to bring Moses to the witness because Moses is a lawgiver. And I want to show how Moses was justified. But that's not what he does. He takes us all the way back to Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, the father of all those who believe. How is the patriarchs, let's use our language, saved? If you want to know how he answers that, you've got to come back next time. The Mosaic law only atoned on the saves. Exactly. And that's how you could walk with God in the old covenant. But you were still justified by faith. Joe and Josephine Israel did not have, well, at least they were not supposed to have, the sense that when I take my sacrifices up to Jerusalem, that's what saves me. That's not, they did not, that's not how they believed that. That was not what they were supposed to do. Some probably did. Just like people today say, well, I go to church every Sunday and I read my Bible and my kids go to Sunday school. I'm going to get in, right? I'm supposed to say no that's not exactly alright I'm going to pray Father thank you for the book of Romans and chapter 3 21 through 26 they are it's one of the most famous paragraphs in scripture it's one of my favorites but it's so theological it's so deep and Lord we need to really understand for you to be able to forgive us and redeem us somehow your wrath had to be satisfied had to be appeased and that's the cross that's the amazing, amazing redemptive plan, the rescue plan that you had for rebellious humanity. Because you love us, you were willing to take the judgment through the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, for us. You punished Jesus so you don't have to punish us. Lord, that is an amazing and amazing truth. It's the amazing grace, the amazing love of God but it's also what Paul argues, God is both the just one and the justifier. The, perfect, the perfection of your attribute of justice is attributed to the cross and manifested at the cross. But it also allows you, therefore, to justify us, to declare us righteous by faith. It's only by faith, not by the works of the law, not because we're Jew, but because we put our faith in Jesus. That's the truth. That's the message we need to be taking to this lost, dark world. The Lord, help us to represent you well in our world. As we go into it, as we live it, as what we say, we want to represent you well. Please enable us to do that to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.